welcome to New Life Preaching Podcast, where we stream our sermons from each Lord's Day. In this series, entitled The Household of God, we begin our study of the first epistle of Peter, where he seeks to encourage Christians who are scattered among pagan nations. Join us each Lord's Day so that you don't miss a single sermon. And as we study 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, we're seeing basically our desire to do good and not what is evil. It's very basic, very basic. We may even ask, just are are you Christian? Are you Christian? There is a very simple litmus test provided us in this passage. As a reminder, we're reading 1 Peter. He's walking through all of that which characterizes the church, what it means and what it looks like to be the church, a member of the household of God, one of the family of God. And so I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And if you're there in your copy of God's Word, I invite you to stand. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that you are there unto called, that you should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Father, we ask your blessing this morning as we meet with you in your word. We pray that we would have understanding. Lord, even as we have already sought Your Word, and we've seen the nature of the psalmist this morning who had a zeal for Your Word, a love for Your will, and a love for righteousness. Lord, we seek righteousness this morning in Christ as it is revealed to us in Your Word. Lord, we pray You only draw us closer to that, closer to His image closer to this love and this peace that we are to pursue. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ for your glory. Amen. You can be seated. This morning as we're reading in 1 Peter, we're really seeing 
a summary, a drawing together of all that has already been preached or taught to us by Peter. He's laying out a very simple division between what's good and what's evil and what we should desire and what we should distance ourselves from. He draws in, I think, all that we've studied up this far. He understands he's speaking to Christians, ones who have been caused to be born again uh, by God the Father. That's the way he introduced his letter. And he's walked through uh, all of the way that we are to be among one another, uh, the way that we are to submit to government or authorities uh, among men, the way he addresses wives submitting in the homes, and even husbands to the Lord as they uh, dispense this authority within the home. And so he addresses us this morning finally. Here at the end of all of these things, at the end of this discussion uh, on all of these matters of submission and what is the will of the Lord, there's a bit of a transition as he describes to us what should fully summarize and characterize the life of the Christian as he goes to apply our Christian living to our relationship to God through Christ Jesus alone. So that's what we're reading. We're going to basically pull apart verse 8 and see the way that all of the rest of that is characterizing that verse, this separation between what is good, what is evil. And so I just want to preface it with a brief discussion concerning that. Understanding that whenever we dive into some of the characteristics we ought to have. It's not merely a law unto ourselves. It's not just things we ought to do or a checklist that we ought to follow, but it is a genuine separation of what is evil from what is good. I want to challenge you to read again some of these verses that may come to mind. When we read the parable of the field that has the wheat and the tares in it, go to that, study it again, and see that what that speaks of is that the church is the wheat, and that church is scattered abroad throughout the world that is filled also with tares. When Christ comes back, He will, uh, he will destroy the tares and He will gather the wheat to Himself. The wheat is the church. I would challenge you to read again the passages of Christ's return where He separates the goats from the sheep. The ones are allotted for destruction and all of the sheep He gathers to Himself as His own flock. The sheep is the church. None of the church, uh, there is none of the church who are anything but the sheep, and there are none of the sheep who are not the church. 
There is only one body of God's people that belong to the faith. There are only those that abide in Christ Jesus that are the church. And that is who Peter is speaking with. That's who we are addressing this morning are Christians. Now it's true that in the way of the world, there's been some poor distinction made. There's been a difficulty for us to discern sometimes what this church visibly looks like. Now that doesn't come because Christ is somehow confused uh, the wheat and the tares or that he is somehow confused who is a sheep and who is a goat. It's come on account of our poor distinction within the church, understanding that there are some within the world that we have included within the church or that maybe we as the church have failed to recognize what at least Baptists have historically recognized, what they have historically uh, been set apart in in their doctrinal stance, and that is that the church is only made of regenerate, born-again believers. Now, while that's not the crux of the passage, it certainly is something that is contingent within these, this passage. It's something we must understand. It's something we must get to once again is that our church is only made of true believers. If one sits among us who is not a true believer, we pray that they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would become believers as they hear uh, the conversation and yet the conversation is not directed toward them. So that you can't walk away understanding that you can be a nice enough person, uh, even tempered enough person and have this gospel applied to you apart from the full work of the gospel that is applied to us through Christ alone. And so, as I began with a question, are you a Christian? If you are then a Christian, all of what follows, all of what Peter is saying will be, in the, be answered in the affirmative. Yes. Yes, I'm a Christian. Then yes to all of what he says in his command. It's true all of us are not perfect. It's true all of us are not entirely pure. It's true all of us have not yet been perfectly sanctified. And yet the Christian, even in their sin, when revealed to them, when, when brought uh, the Word of God is brought to them, they'll accept rebuke. They will repent of sin. They'll show remorse uh, for anything that does not align them with Christ Jesus. And so we serve one another this way. But this morning, Peter tells us, be of one mind. Christians have a unity of mind. Now, what's interesting about each of these different clauses 
that Peter gives here is each of them are only one word. They're one word descriptions of what characterizes the believer. And here that literally means, it's not a big clause, you should have a oneness of mind or unity. It means you have this same perspective. One word is is used there. It doesn't mean that we all have to dress the same, wear our hair a certain way, or, or that we're all alike in every way. It does mean that we share in, a, in our common convictions, that we come to God's Word in the same way. Like we mentioned, uh, all of us aren't perfect. There is a great deal of liberty within the Christian faith. But brother and sister, on every topic, we're going to come together and have one source of authority. What this means is that you do not have the freedom to believe what you want to in a way that leaves me the freedom to believe what I want to. It means that there is only one standard to which we both must be held accountable. It means that we come together and though we might vary in our degrees of being right or being wrong, we both recognize there is one standard that we come to. There is one standard by which we might judge, by which we might come and debate or argue around, but it is one standard that we share, and it's what gives us this unity of mind. There's only one thing that is right, only one thing that is true. Even in our catechism time, we see that we come to the Word of God that we might know God. In this, we have a unity of mind. We have one perspective. And not one perspective. We have the same. This homophronos is the word used. It's only one word. We're of like mind. Of a like purpose, perhaps. And so our goal remains the same with one another. Let's associate that with what we've talked about in the past. We've said of all of this talk of submission to authorities, to governments, all of this talk of uh, addressing sin amongst ourselves, all of this talk of submission, wives in the homes, submissions of the husband, or how, how it is they are to disperse this authority within the homes. You understand all of the goal then, as Peter's summarizing himself, we all have the same mind. We understand that our goal as Christians, uh, it does not defer. Our goal as a husband, as an authority, does not defer from the goal of the wife in submission. Our goal as subjects as godly subjects to any authority, is the same as the goal of those who are in authority, uh, who express godly authority. 
whether in submission or in leadership, the end of the matter, finally, he says, is that we're of the same mind. That there is a common perspective that we hope to achieve in God's Word. He says, have one mind having compassion of one another. Christians have sympathy from one another. Again, this is one word, and it's the word from which we get our word, sympathy, sympathies. Have sympathy on one another. So what Peter's describing is not just being a hard-nosed, Bible-thumping Baptist in the sense that you sometimes hear that expressed. It's not this uh, cold legalism. We have sympathy with one another. Not merely a tolerance for sin among us. We recognize Peter has gone on to say that there's no likeness of evil found among us. It's not our goal to continue in these things, but we pursue what is good. And yet, before his study of these things, he says that we are those who express sympathy. As Christians, we understand what it means to be at war with the sin that resides in our flesh. We understand the nature of our sanctification. We understand how progressive this work of God is in the life of the Christian. So we have sympathy. We know that we're saved by grace alone. That since it's not of our own merits, this means that the, that the imperfect soul who comes in does not enter into the church on the account of their perfection. We have sympathy with this brother or sister. This allows, to us, allows us to go to our brother in love whenever we call them out of their sin. It allows us to rebuke uh, others within the congregation by going to them as to a father in the faith. Like Paul tells Timothy. Christians have sympathy on one another. We have compassion on one another, and he says, love as brethren. Again, one word. You may be familiar that there's various words that are used in Scripture uh, concerning love. This is the one that is often associated with brotherly love. This brotherly affection, this camaraderie and, and fellowship with one another, we exert a brotherly love. Now, I hope what you're seeing is there's a common nature to every one of these terms. And yet, Peter still chooses to pile these words up so that you get the picture. Brotherly love. A level of equality and a oneness belonging to one family. After all, Peter is drawing our thoughts continually, constantly together so that we would see ourselves as belonging to one house, having a unity of the faith. 
and submission together to Christ. So we show brotherly love. How are we to do this? If not in gathering, if not in fellowship, if not touching and feeling and resting on one another. There is a number of ways that this has been applied in our recent history and a number of ways still yet that I think it would do us good uh, to, to draw out. You can't do this apart from fellowship and gathering with other believers. You can't do this if we just assume certain things uh, of our families, of our closest friends. Uh, we might just assume there's brotherly love because of association, and yet where we are not united, where we're not speaking this Word of God, this same standard that draws us together in this oneness of mind and this unity of faith, that brotherly love isn't happening. We may evaluate ourselves in our roles as fathers, in our roles as a husband, and in our various roles within the church. How are you actually showing brotherly love? It's true we might have a, a kind disposition toward others. But how have we put ourselves in service of one another? How have we actually borne up one another in this brotherly love? You may feel an affection toward your wife. How would she say that you have expressed it? You might feel a love and a compassion for your own children if your children were asked, how do you know mom or dad loves you? What would they say? The reality is, is that Peter is calling us to a very real and a very tangible love for one another. The same could be said on accepting love. Some of us place ourselves at a distance from those that we're supposed to have brotherly love with. We don't allow others to love us in the way that we're called to love one another. We want to keep our, our conversation or we want to keep our lives private from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't want to make our needs known to them. We don't want to confess our sins to one another the way that the Scriptures tell us. We distance ourselves in such a way that's sinful. And it prevents this on this brotherly love. We're called to show brotherly love with one another. That involves closeness. We have this singular perspective. We have sympathy on one another. We, we show a brotherly love to each other. And he continues with another word. 
that I read as be pitiful. This is another one, but it means to have a tender disposition. To be tender hearted toward one another. We recognize life is hard. This is really closely related to sympathy. By the end of this, you should see a pattern. As we're coming out of this pattern, the first and the last are going to relate closely and are actually use the same root word with a different modifier. We see on the next inward one and the second and the fourth word, sympathy and a tender disposition are very closely related. We find love at the center of his expression. But here, Christians have a tender disposition. We're pitiful. We show pity on one another. We understand their position and we come from a like mind knowing that we ourselves, we ourselves are in such a pitiful estate apart from God working by His grace and mercy and bringing about a new life, a newness of life that comes with regeneration. You're born again. You have the Spirit within you. And so we can issue pity or our tender disposition, this compassionate spirit toward one another. Sometimes we can be guilty of growing impatient. Of growing impatient with where others are in their spiritual walk. We can grow impatient, not remembering these things that we've already discussed. We can grow impatient in our submission to our governments, forgetting their, their own imperfect nature, forgetting that our governments will never achieve what only the government, what God's own government will achieve, what only the one who would bear the throne whose scepter would never depart from it, would bear. So our governments cannot achieve the perfect leadership that only Christ can achieve. We sometimes grow impatient with, as wives do with their husbands. Certainly wives know what it means to grow impatient with the imperfect leadership of your husband. As husbands, we know what it means to grow impatient with our wives. You can see how Peter needs to stress this. In order to say that I have spoken to you on all of these matters within your society and within your homes, finally realize this. The nature and the heart of the Christian are these things and it involves having a tender disposition having compassion and patience with one another as he's spoken already of difficult times of wives not being afraid with any amazement or frightening uh, frightened with what is frightening he's spoken of the difficulty of suffering well 
suffering when you don't deserve it. It will require of you a tender disposition if you are to farewell. And he finishes. Be courteous. Now what's interesting is this uses the same word as the word we read in the beginning, having a unity of mind, a oneness of mind. Uh, both of the words that are being used here has to do with your, uh, your, your whole perspective, your, your whole um, your mind, uh, your outlook, the inward outlook of this outward expression how it is that we perceive things. Our worldview, perhaps. Christians ought to have a humble perspective. The Christian life is going to require a great deal of humility. All that Peter is speaking about and all that he will continue to teach us in as, as he draws his letter even to a close, it will require a great deal of humility. I think we've referenced in the past Paul's writing in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by taking the likeness of men. Life as a Christian requires humility. The way we should understand this, again, does not mean that we have the tolerance for evil. It does not mean that we are wishy-washy or are an anything-goes sort of a household of God. But to the contrary, it allows us to endure these things. When we're so humble and sympathetic and loving with one another, and we have this unity of calling and of purpose, it allows us to endure these things and not exchanging evil for evil. Whenever we're reviled, we don't revile in return. It means whenever we interact with the world, our weaponry is not the same. There are those who are saying that we should, we should act in the same ways that the world is acting, but for God's good instead. We should use their same terms and their same tactics and their same weapons in order to win the world for Christ. It's not true. It's not true. The, the Christian has not been given wit as a weapon. The Christian has not been given programs within uh, institutions or associations within societies. We have not been given politics as a stronghold. What the Christian has been given is a, is a sword of God's Word. 
A sword that is very sharp, mind you. It's able to divide soul from spirit and bone from marrow. You have a sword and a shield that you are called to enact war with. You have been given arrows that are your children and your quivers are supposed to be full. You fill your household and you train them to be as sharp as your sword so that they too can bear this sword. There are weapons that are so sure and are so pure that remain unblemished with the world that you can wield them with great humility. Understanding that you don't need the weapons of the world. You don't need the success that the world shows you that you need. You don't need the numbers or the masses. How often God has, has cut the provisions of the armies of men that He might show them the strength of the sword that only He provides in His Word. He's sufficient. He is sufficient. Now I know that we will learn a great deal more of this whenever we read through the remainder of Peter's letter. We'll learn a great deal more of Christ whenever we read in Peter's letter. But He assures us with this truth as we depart from evil as we don't allow evil within our ranks and we address evil and we, and we call our brothers and our sisters in Christ to repentance with sympathy and with a tender heart and in all humility and in all brotherly love, having a like mind and a unity of purpose, we can do all of this knowing this truth that the eyes of the Lord or over the righteous, that his ear is open to their prayer. So your success does not come in the mounting of your opposition, it comes in your submission to a powerful Christ, an able and a willing. Savior, one who has equipped you in every way for His coming. The Lord's eyes are upon you and He hears your prayer. Keep in mind, it, it's not the prayer that is said at the backdrop of beautiful music that moves, that stirs us. It's not the prayer that leads droves to respond uh, at an altar. It's the prayer of this one who has a one mind but is compassionate, has brotherly love, is tender-hearted, and has a humble disposition. 
It is to the quiet Christian that God has set his face to shine upon you. For the Christian, if at the beginning you said yes, yes, I'm a Christian, then that's enough. That is enough. For the one who wavers, who has said these things are not true, it may be that they're not true of yourself, but who has said that I will not obey this, I will not heed this exhortation that Peter and this Word of God gives to me, Peter writes, the face of the Lord is against them that does evil. So there is a distinction made, as there so often is in God's Word. God is gracious and merciful and abounding in love able to forgive thousands, the sin to the seventh generation. And yet, He will in no way allow the sins of the wicked to go unpunished. Isn't that what the Scriptures teach? So maybe we all need to submit to this Word. I would ask that each of us allow ourselves to be challenged for the way that we align with this work of God in Christ, that we return to a regenerate church fellowship, that we understand who we are as Christians and how it is that we ought to function toward one another and within our homes and within our societies, that we work to that end and that we are satisfied in Christ. That we're satisfied in what God promises us in Christ and that we yearn for nothing more. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for all that You have done to draw us together. Lord, You've redeemed each of us when we were undeserving. It's because of what You have done, all that you, are, that you are, and all that You show us and reveal Yourself to be in Christ Jesus and in this Word that we have read from this morning. Lord, that You grant us peace. Lord, that You quiet the anxiety of our hearts that we could be a people who are satisfied in Christ alone. And Lord, that You would make us holy in Your sight. And Lord, that through us, this Word would be expressed to all of the world. Lord, that we would be equipped in these ministries that, have, that we have sent even from our small church to the ends of the earth. Let us not neglect those who are closest to us. 
within our families, within our immediate community, but in every circumstance, that you would take the glory from our every effort, from every Christian that is here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Preaching Podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss a single sermon. We invite you to our Lord's Day gathering at New Life Baptist Church Hallsville, where we meet and worship 10.30 a.m. each Lord's Day.